Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. We are going to pick up where we left off last time in 1 John, starting in chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. So right at the beginning, John calls attention. He says, Behold, look at this, uh, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. And Truly, this is a foreign kind of love. Um, the word love here in the Greek is agape, and you've probably heard that word before. It's speaking of a self-sacrificing, selfless love that has no regard for anything in return or any conditions attached to it. So John is saying, look, look at this foreign kind of agape love that the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. So the end result of his bestowal of this love on us is that we are called children of God. And children here is technon. Um, it literally means born ones. So we are born ones of God. You know, we were, we're talking about this agape love, how it's self-sacrificing, how it expects nothing in return. Well, when we were in our sin, God still stepped down to save us. There was nothing in us that attracted His love. There was nothing that we could offer Him for everything that He's done for us. It was something otherworldly. It was the love that only comes from Him. Um, it's, it's not known to us besides through the cross. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. But if I was meeting someone and we started to get to know each other and I figured out, oh, this guy likes fishing. That's pretty cool. And then, oh, he enjoys a good steak every once in a while and he thinks chocolate chip cookies are the best dessert. I would say, well, he's pretty cool. I think I like this guy. So then that would, that would be a brotherly love that we would share um, because of shared interests. But we had nothing in common with God. He was in glory when we were dying in our sins, and he still stepped down. That's the agape love. It's a different kind of love. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world knows nothing of this agape love. It's completely foreign to the world. Um, and therefore, it does not know him because it does not, uh, he is not of it, so the world does not know him. And we'll dive a little bit more into that later. There's another verse that goes into a little bit more detail on that. Verse 2 Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now Galatians 4, 
1 through 2 says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So here we see that, again, we are children of God, born ones of God, and uh, we know that we're heirs of the promise um, from other scriptures, and this means that right now, we have not received the full inheritance. We're still children. As Galatians tells us, children are very similar to a slave in that they are subject to their father, to the guardian. And at the father's will, or at the time appointed by the father, the child receives that full inheritance. So we know that when Christ comes and is revealed, then we will see him as he is and we will go into that full inheritance that we have. Now, bear with me a little bit. Um, I think this is really interesting, and I think that it really is simply the thumbprint of the Holy Spirit on the text. So let's look at this. Um, God obviously possesses more dimensionality than we do. Um, He's infinite, and all-knowing, all-powerful. We are not. That is the difference between Creator and His creation. So we have a hard time conceptualizing greater the dimensions than we actually possess. So we are going to look at lower dimensions than we possess. Edwin Abbott kind of explored this concept. He was a 19th century schoolmaster over, overseas, and he wrote a novella called Flatland, and it explored the two-dimensional world of a square. And the square is actually the protagonist in this little novel, and um, it just tells of how he experiences life in those two dimensions, and he was actually lifted out of two dimensions into three dimensions, got to experience that, and then was put back in two dimensions. So kind of wild, but we're going to take this uh, idea, and I want you to imagine two stick figures drawn on a piece of paper. And we're going to affectionately refer to them as Mr. and Mrs. Flap. And we want to conceptualize how they interact with each other, how they perceive each other. If one of them looks at the other, all they would see is a line, right? Because there's no depth there. It's only height and width. So when we perceive each other, we perceive each other in one dimension less than we actually possess. So we can be said to possess three spatial dimensions plus time, which we're not going to deal with right now. Um, but these two-dimensional figures, Mr. and Mrs. Flat, experience each other in one dimension, in a simple line. So when I look at you, I see you in two dimensions. Can you tell how many fingers I'm holding up? No, it's behind my back. You can't see back there because my body's blocking it. It's in two dimensions. Now you can. So if you were able to see in three dimensions, you would have been able to tell that I was holding two fingers behind my back. When we look at things this way, um, we can see that God already sees us as we are. And not only does he see us in these three spatial dimensions that we possess, he sees into our internal beings, 
our spirit, our soul. And so he can be said to possess more dimensionality than we do. But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So when he is revealed, we are going to be changed. We're going to be given more dimensionality so that we can see him as he actually is. And that is extremely exciting to me. We get to experience the Father more than anyone alive ever has. Remember, Moses had to hide in the rock, in the cleft of the rock, when the glory of God passed by. We can't experience him as he is in our current state of depravity. Um, But we are promised this inheritance. 1 Corinthians 15.51-54 gives us an insight on this glorified state that we will be in. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, and a mystery it definitely is. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And this is awesome news. We are not always going to be subject to this bondage of decay that we are presently experiencing. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So here in verse 3, John is again speaking of that purifying influence of the anticipation of the coming of Christ. And everyone who has that anticipation purifies himself, just as he himself is pure. Verse 4, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, he, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. So back up to verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. I do want to um, read this in the Weist version that I like to use quite a bit, um, especially in 1 John. Uh, Here, John uses a lot of what we know as the present perfect tense. So it's something that's occurring and continuing to occur. So we are going to switch over to the Weist, and I'm going to read verse 4 through 9 in the Weist. When I go through this, pay special attention to this present perfect tense, and it's going to sound like habitually commits sin. It's something that has occurred and is continuing to occur. So here we go. Everyone who habitually commits sin also habitually commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know absolutely 
that the one was manifested in order that he may take away our sins, and sin in him does not exist. Everyone who is in him constantly abiding is not habitually sinning. Everyone who is constantly sinning has not with discernment seen him, nor has he known him, with the result that the condition is true of him at the present. Little born ones, that's technon, the children, stop allowing anyone to be leading you astray. Again, referring to the false teachers that he had talked about previously. The one who habitually does righteousness is righteousness, is righteous, just as that one is righteous. The one who is habitually committing sin is out of the devil as a source, because from the devil, from the beginning, the devil has been sinning. For this purpose, there was manifested the Son of God, in order that he may, might bring to naught the works of the devil. Everyone who has been born out of God with the present result that he is a born one of God, technon of God, does not habitually commit sin because his seed remains in him. And he is not able habitually to sin because out of God he has been born with the present result that he is a born one, technon of God. So we see here that the present perfect tense brings in a little bit more context for us. So... John is not saying, um, if you have sinned, you are of the devil. If you have sinned once in your life, you're of the devil. If you're a born-again Christian, that is not the, the main thrust of your life. The main thrust of your life should be Jesus and relating to his word. You should be studying. That should bring you back to his word. Um, before you were saved, think about things that you are involved in. Uh, and it doesn't matter what it is. Um, could be getting stoned, living in sexual sin, whatever it is. Those things are not what define you currently if you are a new creation in Christ. Because now you have the Holy Spirit replacing that old man that was in you. And now you're not habitually committing those same sins. And if you are, then... That's a heart check moment for you. You need to make that right with God. You need to pray about that. Um, but this non-habitual sinning, the occasional slip up, you feel guilty about it. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I knew better. And then you come back to God. You repent. You turn away from that. Put it away. That is the evidence of a new birth in Christ. And that's exactly what John is talking about. Um, it is this man who habitually commits sin. Since John is not saying that all Christians are sinless, obviously we know that's not true, I find great hope in this. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That was back in chapter 2, verse 2. So we are going to move on to verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So right away, John lays it out in black and white. It's not, uh, there's no room for gray area. It's either you practice righteousness and you are of God, or you do not practice righteousness, and you are not of God. 
and the world will give you lies. And uh, you hear people saying, oh, I want to take a little bit of Christianity, but I also want to be free to express my spirituality in other ways. Well, that's the lie that the enemy is feeding you, and it gets you nowhere. That's not true, though. It does get you somewhere, but it's not somewhere you want to be. So it is very black and white. You're of God or you are of the devil. Okay, one more time, I'm going to refer to the weast uh, to get some context in chapter 3, verse 10. In this is a parent who are the born ones of God and the born ones of the devil. Everyone who is not habitually doing righteousness is not of God. Also, the one who is not habitually loving his brother, and brother there is referring to other Christians, our brothers in Christ, with a divine and self-sacrificial love. So that is exactly what we just talked about. The Christian does not go back to the things of the devil, the things of the world, and habitually live in those things, but he turns away and repents of those things. Verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who is of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So this is referring back to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, way back, this is actually the first murder that was ever committed. In John 15, verse 12, and no doubt this is where John is getting this idea of loving and the commandment of God. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And once again, this is using the word agape for love. So it's a self-sacrificial love. And that is exactly how Jesus loved the disciples, and he loves the church and all of us here today. Um, even when we had nothing to offer him, he offered everything for us. When we look in verse 11, you see verse 12, it says the wicked one. There are two main words used in the New Testament for wicked. We have kakos, which is a generally miserable, evil person. Um, but they are content in that evil, and they're, they're not necessarily like scrounging for, for more evil. They're just content in their miserable ways. So that's kakos and poneros. Poneros is a little bit different. It's also evil and miserable, but it wants to drag everyone else down with it. It wants to share in that misery. And poneros is the evil that it's talking about here, the poneros one, speaking of Satan. He's not content to be thrown into the lake of fire by himself, but he wants to drag everyone with him that he can and share in his misery. So Cain, who was of that wicked one, of is ek. It's denoting origin, the point where an action or motion proceeds from. So the point of origin of Cain's action of killing his brother is from that wicked one, the Poneros one. Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. One more word for you, and this was pretty cool when I saw this. 
um, we actually get more insight here than we do back in Genesis when we see this story. Um, right here, your Bible probably says murdered or slew his brother. That word is sfaso, and that is the same word that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to talk about the killing of the sacrifices in Leviticus. So it is literally to cut the jugular vein. So sfazo, and since that word is used, we get the insight that Cain actually slew his brother by cutting his throat, uh, just like the Levitical sacrifices would have been carried out. And, you know, this makes sense. I mentioned earlier that this was the first murder in the world. And Cain would have not had any previous knowledge of people killing other people. So he got rid of his brother literally the only way he knew how, same way that they were sacrificing their animals. Uh, in the field, he slit his throat, and Abel's blood cried out to God. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. And again, if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you can read this story. But basically, Cain offered a sacrifice to God that was not pleasing in God's eyes. Abel offered a sacrifice that was pleasing. And Cain had a resentment. And he did not like that his sacrifice was not accepted. And that resentment that started in the heart worked its way to his hands. And eventually, it manifested itself in murder. 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here in verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We mentioned this just a little bit ago. Um, but Jesus, while praying for his disciples, says in John seventeen fourteen, I have given them your word, talking to God, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, this is pretty cut and dry. The world hates us because we're not of it. And there's nothing that we can do that's going to change that. And it's sad to see people try because we're not appointed to be accepted by the world. We're, we're told to be a light to the world, a city on a hill. Um, that sets us apart. We don't want to blend into the world. And so often, even in the churches, uh, we see people trying to fit in, trying to bring the world into the church to supposedly reach more people in the world. That's not a great um, precedent to set, uh, but rather we should let the gospel go forth and accomplish its purpose. The world hates him before it hated us. Um, we are children of him, so by extension, the world hates us. We know that we have passed from death to life. Now, this 
verse has a lot of definite articles in it. So it can be read like, we know that we have passed from the death to the life because we love the brethren continuously. So he who does not love his brother abides in death. So it it can be a little bit confusing looking at verse 14, but it's not saying that loving the brethren is how we pass from death to life. That's not what it's saying. It's only by the work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we pass from death to life. But by loving the brethren, it provides evidence that that change has occurred in our lives. So that's all it's saying, is that loving the brethren, your fellow Christians, with this agape, selfless love is evidence for your new birth. And we see a lot of new Christians when they they come in to uh, Jesus, they will start to question their salvation. And that's completely normal, really. Uh, and it's a common place for new Christians to be. But First John, all throughout it, gives great reassurance to those people. Um, and here, this is one of them. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So he who is habitually hating his brother abides in death. 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So this is in the context of just talking about Cain. So I mentioned earlier that um, this resentment in Cain started in his heart, and it eventually worked his way to his hands. And uh, James uh, says the same thing. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It always starts in the heart. And that's why Jesus, uh, when being confronted, says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So Jesus said it's not enough to not kill someone, but the sin of killing someone begins in the heart, and that's just as bad as actually carrying out the action. The condition of your heart informs what your hands do. And we see that over and over. I believe it was Paul uh, when he was writing in Romans, uh, mentioned the law of covetousness and how that slew him. He said that when he read that law, he realized that the law, speaking of the entire law, was about the heart. It wasn't about the physical actions. Because when you covet something, you don't physically have to do anything for that to occur. That's a heart issue. So when he read that, he he had that realization that, no, it's not just about what I do. It's about who I am. Verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So there is two main types of knowledge. Okay, And right here it is gnosko. Gnosko is an experiential knowledge. 
It's something that you experience and thus you know, you understand. And oida is a different kind of knowledge. Uh, if you remember back when it says that you have been given the Holy Spirit and you know all things, it uses oida to say you know all things. And that is an intuitive kind of a knowledge. Uh, the, the Spirit gives you spiritual insights, and that is intuitive within your being. So, it says, by this, we gnosko, we know love, and that's an experiential kind of knowledge, because he laid down his life for us. That's how we've experienced that love. We see him laying down his life for us. Um, and it's important to note that we do not uh, experience this love that he has for us by him giving us a great spouse or by him bringing back one of our kids that has fallen away. That's not how we know this love. You know, some people will complain and eventually end up uh, distancing themselves from God because something has happened in their life that is less than ideal to them. Um, there are hard times, no doubt, and everyone here has experienced that. And if you haven't, I can promise that you will. But those hard times and the mending of those hard times is not what demonstrates his love for us. He's already demonstrated it in the greatest way that could possibly be imagined. And that was through the person and the work of Jesus. Um, the laying down of his life, literally of his soul, that we should be called children of God, technon, born ones of God. Listen to this. This is, this is beautiful. We know experientially that God loves us, sacrificially, without regard to the condition, because... Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No regard for our current condition. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? James echoes this idea as well. James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, these two things, faith and works, are inextricably connected. They are intertwined so that you can't have one without the other. So, According to James, if you see a brother in need, and this is echoed by John, and you do nothing about it, then your faith is dead. Um, you don't have that faith that informs your actions, and that is necessary. So with true faith comes those works. The works are literally an outworking of the faith that you have in Christ. And if you do have that agape love residing in you that is only from Christ, then you have no problem helping that guy out or that brother or sister in Christ. 
even if he can't repay you. Remember, it's self-sacrificial and it's not concerned with repayment or the conditions of the love. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask from, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed in truth. This is John's way of saying talk is cheap. And it's true. Uh, Talk is cheap. Uh, Like we said earlier, actions should be informed by our faith, uh, not just the way we talk. Agape love is this sacrificial kind of love, and it necessarily looks like something. Love, especially this agape kind of love, a self-sacrificial love, is not an emotion. It's a choice. It's a choice that you make to love. You see, it's an action. And people do not care what you know until they know that you care. And that is kind of the idea that John is getting across. People don't know, don't care what you know until they know that you care. You can try to minister to someone all that you want, but you may be the brightest individual ever, and they will not give a hoot if they know that you don't care about them. And that is the harsh reality of the situation. Um, In 1 Corinthians 13, it refers to someone without love as a clinging symbol. Here and then gone. Super loud and then silent. So verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Has your heart ever condemned you? Have you ever had that visceral uh, churning in your stomach when you know that something is not right? You're struggling. You're wrestling with something in your innermost being. And you know that it's not what you should be doing, but still, you you wrestle with it. That's what he's talking about here. Your heart condemning you. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. That, that churning in you, that struggle, the wrestling, is evidence of a new birth in Christ. Those who are living in the world, who are sinning habitually, don't have that guilt conscience about them. They just go on with their ways and try to justify it by some natural means. Um, you know, the world has a lot of those that they push forward. Uh, the excuses for wrong living. And we saw that earlier in First John when he addressed the Gnostic heresy. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So God has promised us something. And this promise is greater than whatever condemns us. And that promise is that we have a parakletos, We have an advocate with him, and that is Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ is beside the Father saying, no, 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 yes, he messed up, but it's covered. It's as if it never happened. And that is the promise that overrides our gut feeling, that twisting inside us. That's not to say that we ignore that feeling. Yep, have to go there. But you should not ignore that feeling of your consciousness. Um, your conscience will sometimes lead you astray. And that's what it's talking about here. The promise of God is greater than when you are have already been forgiven for something, yet you're still trying to hang on to it. His forgiveness is enough to set you free. And he who is set free in that forgiveness is free indeed. God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He knows your struggle right now. He knows your struggle in past years. He knows what you're going to struggle with in future years. And it's so awe-inspiring to me to understand, at least try to, the fact that before I was saved, God knew my sins that I would commit after I was saved. And he chose to forgive me and save me anyways. He knows all things. And yet he does not hold back his agape love for us. And that is beautiful, a beautiful demonstration of this. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Sometimes we understand the sufficiency of the grace that he's provided us. And that gives us a clear conscience, and we can approach him just saying, Abba, Father, and laying ourselves before him. Um, and that is a beautiful thing to be able to do that. And if our heart doesn't condemn us, we speak freely to him. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And the Father certainly knows how to give good gifts to his children. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is a type of a down payment to us before we receive that full inheritance that we talked about earlier. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So that commandment that is being referred to in verse 22 we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Those are referring to this commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. This is not a new idea for John. He didn't come up with this. He heard it from Jesus himself. Uh, in Matthew 22, verse 40, Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees, regarding which of their commandments was the greatest. Jesus answered them, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So these two things, these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Those are echoed here in John's epistle. We should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. It's the same idea. John is just emphasizing this point to the churches he's writing to in Galatia. Uh, I'm sorry, in Asia Minor. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Verse 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. Pay attention to the capitalizations in your Bible, because there's a lot of his and hims. Uh, But you can tell when it's referring to God because it's capitalized, and when it's referring to us because it's not capitalized. Now he who keeps God's commandment abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this we know that God abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So again, uh, the Spirit is a type of a down payment for this inheritance that we are to receive in the very near future, I believe. Um, And, you know, we have not been brought into that full inheritance yet. Uh, We are like a child, like a slave. Uh, At the appointed time of the Father, we will be brought in and we will receive that inheritance from him. And it has not been fully revealed what we shall be, that glorified body that Paul was talking about. Um, You take off the corruptible body and put on incorruptible. We will have that glorified body when we meet Christ face to face. And with that, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we're absolutely floored by your demonstration of your agape love for us. God, we ask that this week as we go into the world that we would demonstrate that same love that you've showed us to everyone else that we come across. God, especially those who are our brothers and sisters in you. We ask you, God, this morning that you would indwell in us your Holy Spirit, that he would convict us, um, use our conscience to direct us in your will and to keep us from those things that are not pleasing to you. And God, if there's something that is bothering us, that's pulling on us, that you have already forgiven us for, if we've already come to you humbly and asked that you would forgive that thing, we ask that you would uh, allow your promise to resonate within us and to comfort us in that time of need. God, the promise that you would take that sin away from us, that it would be wiped clean and we would be presented as blameless before you only because of your son. God, thank you so much for this demonstration. We, we ask that you would continue to be with us this week. And we ask that your word this morning has not returned to you void. God, we know that it hasn't because you've, you've promised that as well. God, it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.